Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we're looking back on the highlights of The Menu from 2023. In the programme, Marcos Hippie speaks to the owner of Violet Bakery in East London. What I wanted to do was highlight the recipes that I grew up with in California and also show some of the fun traditional English recipes that I learned about when I came here, like treacle tart and sticky toffee pudding. Monaco's Helsinki correspondent goes foraging for wild mushrooms. Plus, I speak to Alexina Anatola about the beauty of bitter ingredients. Bitterness is being bred out of our food, you know, out of our fruit and vegetables specifically. Because at the same time, we've also becoming more and more in love with dark chocolate, more and more in love with an espresso, more and more in love with a Negroni. So what's going on here? All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Claire Patak is the chef and owner of the renowned Violet Bakery cake shop in East London. Before moving to London, she spent years working as pastry chef at Alice Waters' renowned Chepanese restaurant in California. Claire opened Violet Bakery in 2010 and the spot has since become a cult destination. The word spread to such an extent that Claire was asked to prepare a cake for a certain royal wedding in 2018. Ahead of the release of her latest book, Love is a Pink Cake, Irresistible Bakes for Morning, Noon and Night, Marcus Hippie sat down with Claire in the studio to find out more about the book's inspiration and the story of her beloved bakery. This one was, it started out being a book about seasonal, seasonal baking, so seasonality and baking. But then because I was writing it during the pandemic and we weren't able to shoot when we wanted to shoot and we couldn't do the four seasons, it became a totally different book. <laughs> so I kind of had to, sh- we shot it half in England and then half in the US and then I rewrote the book after the shoot. So <laughs> so it's really about um, where I'm from in California and how that's influenced what I do here in England and kind of stories about the bakery and stories about growing up in Northern California. I would imagine that's quite a big topic. You have divided this book into into two bits. There's California and there is England. Yeah. I have to ask, when you think about what your baking style was like when you moved to London from California, how has England changed what you do, changed and shaped. Yeah, it's shape is a good word. It's changed the sort of look and feel of it a lot, I think. The thing that's really the through line is the ingredients that I choose and how I choose my ingredients. But when I came here, I I just quickly noticed that there was like a certain different palette that people had here in the UK. And even though people associate American baking with uh, a lot of sugar and color, food coloring and stuff. I never, I never did that because I'm a Northern California hippie. So you know, it was like always um, healthier and kind of using whole grain flours and uh, unrefined, less refined sugars. But but I definitely had like a different aesthetic. And then living here for the last, it's almost 18 years now. Um, yeah, it's really changed and shaped the way I sort of see the food that I'm creating. So. Yeah. You talk about different palettes, different ingredients. On a more philosophical level, do you see a difference as you write how here in England the word cake covers much more, <laughs> for example? It, it's true. I love the way people just kind of use that blanket term for all sweet things. Um, you know, people say like, oh, come for cake or let's go have cake or look at all these cakes. And I'm like, there's one cake and then there's like cookies, you know, brownies, whatever. But it's like this... 
I think the word for people here really is associated with love. So the title, I think, uh, makes a lot of sense with the way people think about this sweet treat here in the UK. Yeah. When you moved here over 15 years ago, were there some things that took time to get used to when you think about those differences <laughs> in baking? What were the most confusing bits? Um, gosh, there was so much to get used to. I feel like I was shell-shocked when I moved here. <laughs> um, the availability was was a big one because, actually, I started Violet because there were not any cake bakeries that I felt like I wanted to go to. But um, yeah, no, I just felt like it, there was a real gap in the market for what I wanted to create. And also, yeah, I just think... In California, you know, we don't really eat raisins. I mean, California raisins are like, California's famous for raisins, California raisins, but we don't really eat raisins. We don't really like, like we would pick them out here. Everybody was like going crazy for, you know, uh, Christmas pudding and Christmas cake and mince pies filled with raisins and all these like kind of dried fruits. I was like, this is so unusual. <laughs> so I had to really kind of adjust and adapt. But I, I really actually fell in love with those things too and the and the flavors that are so beloved here. So I got into it. Just talking about the recipes you have in this book, the sections California and and England, if you talk about those recipes, how how different are these sections then? You know, honestly it was difficult because of how much time I've spent here and this is my home now here in the UK to really separate them. They've kind of fused in some ways. But what I wanted to do was highlight the recipes that I grew up with in California and also show some of the fun traditional English recipes that I learned about when I came here, like treacle tart and sticky toffee pudding and angel cake, which are things that I think are very nostalgic for people here. So they all have a bit of both, a bit of my California style and a bit of my my new home kind of flair. <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard to totally separate them, but there's classics in each that are, that are 100% from those places, and then I've put my little sort of twist on them. So. What are your favorites? Um, definitely in the in the England section, I love angel cake. I mean, this is like a cake that is pink and yellow and filled with this kind of almondy vanilla buttercream, which is... Um, kind of the antithesis to what I talk about in my work <laughs> with um, fruit-focused seasonal baking. But this cake is really so kind of, it just makes you smile. And my daughter and I discovered it together in a corner shop one day after swimming class. So um, it just it has a lot of fond memories for me, and, and people seem to really like it. So, um, And then in the California section, I'd say um, any of the pies. I have a grape pie, which I adore. I uh, have blackberry pie, which is also a favorite that has some chili pepper in it, which is unusual, and um, it's a favorite recipe too. So, You opened your bakery, Violet, in, in East London some 15 years ago. Yeah. How much has it changed over the years? What has the evolution been like? Well, yeah. So when I I moved, <laughs> there's a funny story that I tell friends that like when I moved to Hackney from California, there was no nowhere to get a coffee, like anywhere to get a coffee. So my um, my former husband and I would go to the Homerton Hospital to get a coffee because <laughs> <laughs> it was the only place where they had an espresso machine, <laughs> and it was like some terrible like. It was called Ritazza, and it was fine, sorry, Ritazza, but it was like a chain, and it was the best thing you could find, you know. Um, there was no artisanal coffee at all, and so, um, 
Yeah. So now I think there's one on, there's three on every block. You know, mm-hmm. it's wild. But also there was an artist community um, already in East London that, and a lot of fashion designers in East London. So it felt like a really natural place to go. And also there was a really strong community of people. And unfortunately, like some of that changes with gentrification. So yeah, <laughs> it's mixed. I feel mixed about it. And how has the baker itself changed over the years when you think about the evolution of that place? Oh my God. So, well, when I, I, I've been in the same location. So we found the location and it was really run down and it was the only thing I could afford. <laughs> But it was, we painted it and we sort of um, just like, it was going to be actually just a kitchen to cook out of and supply markets. But then our, our our customers from the market were basically coming and knocking on the door and being like, is this Violet? Is Violet opening a bakery? You know, what's happening here? So I was like, okay, I've got to open a bakery. And then it, it pretty quickly became known. So, I mean, the first few, I guess the first couple of years, it was pretty quiet, but there was people searching it out, which is always really exciting. And now, yeah, now it's for sure discovered. <laughs> I know, and, and something that's helped people to discover that place was probably a certain royal wedding some yeah. years ago. I remember I actually lived quite close to your bakery and remember walking past one morning and you had a few television camera crews outside Were reporting. Yeah, it was wild. That's so funny that you saw that because literally... Um, So I was asked by Megan and Harry to make their wedding cake. I think it was January before their May wedding. Um, and they announced it a couple of months later. So it must have been, I think, yeah, I think it was March that they announced that I was going to be making the cake. And literally overnight, news crews like showed up and kind of camped out <laughs> Violet. It was so bizarre. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, like, what were they expected to see two months before or what they, you know, I don't know. It was very funny. But that certainly transformed our business as well. Um, and after all of that kind of went away, um, you know, we just had a lot of great customers from from that um, event. <laughs> Claire Patak in conversation with Marcus Hippie there. You're listening to The Menu. Next, we head to Finland, where foraged mushrooms have this year become more and more popular in both home and restaurant cooking. Finland has over 200 kinds of edible mushrooms, and anyone is free to pick as many as they like anywhere they go. Back in autumn, our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov joined a group of mushroom lovers who took part in a foraging weekend organized by one of the city's most upscale hotels. It's a rainy morning in eastern Helsinki, and a group of 12 mushroom enthusiasts venture into a small forest clad in waterproof jackets, all carrying large woven baskets. It doesn't take long before someone spots a rare delicacy growing near a spot. This group is taking part in a popular mushroom weekend organized by one of Finland's best-known mushroom lovers, Saimi Hoyer, together with one of Helsinki's most iconic luxury hotels, St. George. That a luxury hotel would jump on the mushroom bandwagon is the latest sign that Finland is experiencing a veritable mushroom boom. To be fair, mushroom picking has always been popular in Finland, but it has mostly been done by those Finns living in the countryside. It is only recently that all those living in larger cities too have started to flood their social media feeds with photos of baskets brimming with the likes of chanterelles and porcini. Simi, how many edible mushrooms does Finland have? 
many, 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 but uh, those which uh, I think are really good, 70, 80, good, really good ones. And then there are those which are amazing, <laughs> that you almost faint when you Can you give an example of, of one of those fa fainting mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> so there is this one black um, mushroom, um, Hygrophorus camarophyllus, which, is, uh, which um, smells like uh, musk or honey. I eat it, I cook it as, as um, kind of a really spicy food, Moroccan food. And I have to ask you now, um, we've been walking here in the forest and you obviously, you are so experienced, you can tell all the best spots by just looking at them. But to, to somebody who is not experienced, uh, let's say somebody listening to this show in London and travels to Finland to pick, pick mushrooms, uh, how do they, I mean, when you walk in the forest, how do you find the mushrooms? What, what do you need to know? You should always go to the forest with a person who knows the forests, who knows uh, what kind of uh, mushroom grows in what kind of forest. Because if you just read the mushroom books, you see the pictures, but um, it depends how mushroom is in that picture. Uh, when the picture has been taken in the morning, in the evening, what is lightning, is it raining like today or is it shiny day, very dry day? Today it has been raining the whole day. We are totally wet here, but it's this big enthusiasm which brings us here. Next it was time to head back to the hotel where we had started the day early in the morning with a mushroom-infused cocktail, of course. While cleaning the mushrooms ahead of preparing the evening meal, I thought I'd ask St. George's managing director why the hotel, known to be one of the city's most luxurious, decided that people should put on their wellies and rain ponchos and head out into the forest in search of mushrooms. Jukka Reisanen, general manager here at St. George's Hotel in Helsinki. Talk to us a little bit about the background. Why did you decide to organize this mushroom event? People, when they come to Finland and when they come to Nordics they seek somehow experiences which are close to the nature. If you think about the forest, so forest means also uh, space, peace. Here in Finland it's also safe. Uh, we thought that those are the elements also for well-being for Finns. Why couldn't they be well-being elements also for guests who come here from abroad? Soon it was time to start preparing for the evening's feast, a 12-course menu cooked using the mushrooms we picked today with the help of the hotel's executive chef, Jussi Ylital. He was spoiled for choice as we presented him with a bounty of various Finnish forest mushrooms such as horns of plenty, porcini, chanterelles, candy caps, yellow feet and much more. I asked Ylital if Finland's mushroom boom has reached the kitchens of Helsinki's top restaurants too. I think, yes, I think that the young chefs are more uh, aware about the different kind of forest mushrooms. Uh, let's say that 10-15 years we more uh, use like uh, mushrooms that was easy to available uh, around the year. But I think that the seasonal is more stronger and stronger every year. What would you say are some of the most popular mushroom dishes that you can find in restaurants in Finland? 
We have actually quite strong classics, uh, but I, I think that the, the most are like in, in the sauces, in the, the, the main course. And the starter we actually pickle a lot. So like today we're gonna eat pickle mushrooms with the starter. And you know, cream and butter love mushroom, and mushroom love cream and butter. So basically from the pasta sauce to, to the main course sauce, everything goes. And, and is it easy now we're talking about, you know, we've been, we spent the day in the forest picking, uh, foraging for wild mushrooms. Uh, but is it, I mean, from a restaurant's point of view, how easy or how difficult is it to use these wild mushrooms on, on the menu? I think those restaurants are winner on this. Uh, it's about the location. We are now center of Helsinki. So it means that somebody need to pick up the mushroom for us. But I know my colleagues around the Finland, they can go if the location is right, you can go to the forest and pick yourself the mushrooms. It need to have the variation. Customers need to understand that some of the mushrooms are not available, but there's some mushrooms that is available all the time. Mushrooms are available anywhere where there is a forest. Yes, some countries have limitations on which mushrooms you're allowed to pick, but it is safe to say that locally foraged mushrooms are still a relatively underutilized resource in both home and restaurant cooking. With people increasingly conscious of where their food comes from, and with vegan food getting more and more popular, mushrooms really are the food of the future. And restaurants are waking up too to the availability of fresh ingredients right at their doorstep. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Petri Burtsov with that report. You're listening to The Menu. And finally, this year, the menu team discovered the beauty of bitter ingredients. Out of all five tastes, bitter might be the least explored, and in some ways, the least appreciated. Negative connotations have long swirled around bitterness, but the complexity of this taste is also what gives many dishes and ingredients their memorable, delicious impact. In October, I sat down in a studio with author Alexina Anatola, who has written a whole book exploring the contrasts at the heart of this taste how it can repel and attract, but ultimately feel addictive. From coffee to chocolate, many of people's favourite foods have a hint of bitterness in them. It turns out, as she puts it in her book, that sometimes the things that can seem unpleasant can turn out to be really good for you. Here, we delve deeper into bitterness. So bitterness was something that when I took part in MasterChef, I sort of lent on quite a lot during the course of the competition. And I didn't actually know initially why I did that, but it's something that the judges kept referencing. And it took me some time after finishing filming the show to realise that in a competition scenario, you don't have access to all the same tools that you do at home for making food delicious. How do you add dimension to food? It is through things like memories. It is through time. Time's really powerful. If we think about fermentation or bread dough or slow cooking, this adds a lot of flavour. But in a competition, you don't have loads of time, so that's sort of not an option. I don't know who I'm cooking for. When I cook for my friends, I know what their tastes are like and how they skew, so I kind of adjust to them. So I realised that the reason I used a lot of bitter sour and strong flavours on the show was because I wanted my food to have impact and I didn't have these other options for me, available to me. And 
So when I came off the show and I, they, the judges kept talking about, gosh, you use a lot of bitter flavours, I thought no one's really explored this topic. Um, it's fascinating because there are so many contradictions and conundrums related to bitter. And what I found particularly interesting was, that, as you said, we have these negative connotations of bitterness, both in food and when it comes to emotions. But a lot of the world's most popular ingredients have bitterness in them. If we think of chocolate, if we think of coffee, um, if we think of tea, grapefruit, walnuts, none of these are, are sort of niche ingredients. So that I just thought was a great place to start. I also thought it was interesting that there's a, a narrative that says that we have been designed to perceive bitterness in our food to be able to identify when something's poisonous. But at the same time today, I would argue that when I was writing the book, it became very clear that bitter ingredients are very, very good for you on the whole. So that seemed like another contradiction. And I thought, gosh, well, there's lots to unpack here. Absolutely. There's a, there's a sentence in your introduction which I particularly love. It talks about the experience of eating something bitter. And you, and you write, you sit momentarily on a fine border between pleasure and disgust. That to me is so fascinating because so many of the experiences that we have we, and the interesting and memorable food experiences kind of straddle that line that is not just obvious. The more complex, the more it sticks in the mind. And another thing that you say in the book is that we have a single type of receptor for sweet, but 26 receptors for bitterness. Yes. Um, complexity is good then? Complexity is good. And I, I think if we think about the tongue, and there are all these receptors that res respond to different compounds, whether they be sweet, sour, bitter or otherwise, when you're eating, if you're just sort of triggering one receptor, then... It might be enjoyable, but it might not be that exciting for the palate. It might not get your brain excited about what you're eating. But if you can trigger multiple receptors on the tongue, whether it's through bringing different types of bitterness or it's through having sort of all of the five tastes represented, then that's when your brain starts to get really excited. I think it's why salted caramel has, for example, has become such a big phenomenon. It's not just sweet. It's also salty. There's also slight bitter edge from the caramel itself. And so you're really giving a lot for the brain to get excited about. And that's that's sort of part of what I'm trying to say in the book, I guess. Um, I also wonder if in general people's palate has changed in the past few years. Only recently I interviewed the founders of London Cocktail Week and they told me that the Negroni craze has completely revolutionised the cocktail industry. And there is something in it. I mean, Negroni is mentioned numbers of times in the book as well, but it certainly opened the door and maybe made people feel more comfortable with a certain type of taste. Um, how do you think people's palate has changed and why? Something I had noticed that I was curious about was I just don't feel like grapefruit is, is as bitter as it used to be. I just don't feel like spinach is as bitter as it used to be. Brussels sprouts are not as bitter as they used to be because everyone used to hate Brussels sprouts and now everyone, most people like them. And I don't think it's just because we've learned how to cook with them. And so I was wondering what that was about. And then I came across a an article in The Scientist written by a doctor and they explained that actually bitterness is being bred out of our foods, you know, out of our fruit and vegetables specifically. And I thought that was interesting because at the same time, we've also 
are becoming more and more in love with dark chocolate, more and more in love with an espresso, more and more in love with a Negroni. So what's going on here? And I wonder if those two things are linked. I don't know. But if we are not getting as much bitterness from our fruit and vegetables, then are we compensating for it? Are we therefore wanting sort of more bitterness in other areas? And I think just to loop back to something you said before, I do think there's a real sweet spot between comfort and discomfort in life, you know. And I think sometimes I like to to talk about chocolate as a good example of this phenomenon because people just think, oh, well, surely something just purely sweet is the nicest type of thing. But if that was the case, milk chocolate and dark chocolate wouldn't be outselling white chocolate. If you think about it, you've got those three. White chocolate has no bitter cocoa mass in it. Dark chocolate has bitter cocoa mass rounded out with some sugar and then you've got milk chocolate in the middle which has milk and sugar added to the bitter cocoa mass so if sweetness was the aim of the game then white chocolate would be the bestseller but it's never been the bestseller milk chocolate was the bestseller and dark chocolate is on its heels now um and i think that's that's interesting i find the 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 point that you make about the supply chain is really, really interesting because I was trying to find ingredients to cook from this cookbook myself in the lead up to the interview. And I really wanted to make the chicory gratin or the radicchio pasta. And, you know, in the local supermarkets around my house, I couldn't find any of these things. Perhaps if it was a different location, I'm sure if it, I was in Italy in you yes. know, in, in a market where there's plenty of this produce available... Perhaps it would have been a different story. But I was only able to find myself a jar of tahini and I had to go for the kind of tahini-honey combination, which is lovely. But I feel like we're slightly being cut out from these slightly harder ingredients, you know, because they feel a bit more mature, perhaps. You know, there is a sense of like a lot of these taste being kind of grown-up taste, alcohol, coffee. There are things that the children don't eat. The, the children only have the sweet tooth. Like, Is there a little bit of an infantilization almost of what's on the supermarket shelves? You're right that in Italy, I mean, I think Italy is a great example of a culture that really embraces bitterness um, across all their kind of all their their dishes and cuisine. Our palate does change as we age. And so this idea that, you know, as you get older, your palate becomes more mature is true because when you're younger, it's in evolutionary terms, the aim of the game is that the child has to survive to adulthood. And so, you know, the child needs energy and sugar represents, you know, calories. So that's why as a child, kids are very obsessed with sweet things. They are less inclined to enjoy something bitter. As you get older, that does change and you don't need to survive in the same way. So you're more open to broader flavour experiences, but also you've built... I mean, you know, I think our perception of flavour is, is very subjective. It's very influenced by culture, by experiences we've had with people. And so you have a richer bank of experiences as you get older to draw upon, which might influence how you taste something. You certainly aren't needing to go after the sweet sweetness quite as much and also you your taste buds start to die off so actually as you get older you want sort of more punchy flavors to kind of excite you as if by magic <laughs> we have presented you yes. with a cup of tea yes. that has some milk in it and we also have this wonderful platter of bitter ingredients that i thought we could kind of get a taste of yes and then you maybe could guide us a little bit about what the flavour feels like, but also how you would cook with that type of flavour. So right. you've got a cup of tea in front of you, which you've just taken a lovely sip from. Yes. 
Um, it's a classic, particularly mm-hmm. here in Britain. But how does black tea feel for you in the mouth? And also, what can you? What magic can you do with it? So a mug of black tea, I, I almost find unpalatably bitter, actually. It's, it's quite thin tasting and it's quite harsh. And the addition of the milk is... You know, it's maybe the fat molecules in the milk are coating your tongue and it's sort of insulating you from some of the bitterness of the tea. And this is something we all do daily and some of us even add sugar. So maybe if the bitterness is is something that we really, really aren't so big fan of, we'll also add sugar to balance it out. Um, In the book, I use tea in more in terms of infusing things or from the tea bag so there are sort of there's short cardamom chai shortbread in the book I find shortbread quite delicious buttery but quite sweet and I really felt like the bitterness of the black tea just helped to balance it out and I think that's actually true of I think bitterness is very 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 useful when it comes to desserts in general Let's go to one of the great classics of all time, chocolate. Chocolate. Could you? Could I grab a piece, of please? Of course. Here you go. Uh, let's go. Let's get a taste. Yeah. The amazing thing is that it doesn't do everything at once. It no. starts in a place and then it ends in another. Yes. And you're left with something that is actually really quite lovely from the chalkiness of the beginning. When you first taste it, as you said, there's a kind of chalkiness, kind of the bitterness comes through. And then I get kind of a hit of sweetness, but they don't sort of come together until it starts to melt on your tongue, I find. But what's interesting is that, you know, all seven, 70%, we might think that 70% chocolate is all going to be the same level of bitterness, but actually it's not. So you, it is a process of experimentation to find which ones you particularly like and so sometimes a 70% chocolate can actually taste quite sweet. Sometimes it can taste as bitter as an 85%. It just varies. Um, but chocolate is obviously something that we we have a great affinity for, a great love for. And, um, and I think there's it's no surprise that chocolate is the favourite of so many and favourite desserts. Because in desserts you have all this sweetness and it's the bitterness of the chocolate that does a wonderful job of cutting through and making making you able to eat that whole slice of chocolate cake, you know. <laughs> it's interesting also that in certain traditions, like the Mexican tradition, for example, it's used pretty commonly in savoury dishes as well. Yes, and actually in, also in places like Sicily with caponata, they'll grate bitter chocolate over the top. So I definitely think it's not just restricted to sweet things. And we, you know, in as you said, in sort of Central America and Mexico, in a mole, like they will add cocoa and it's adding depth of flavour. That's what it's doing. It's adding complexity to your point you made at the beginning. More complex, interesting foods are generally more exciting to eat. And that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of it. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Tulkun Yolu by Suvita Razniska. Thanks for listening and until next week. Tuo ensi joulu sai muuttaa historiaa.
Siempre.